Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series developed by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. I'm your host today. My name is Natalie. I'm a communications intern for the Proctor Institute and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Joining me today is Karen Gross. She is a Washington, D.C. and Gloucester, Mass-based advisor and consultant to schools, nonprofits, and governments. Um, And today we're going to be discussing the ins and outs of trauma and focusing on understanding its role and impact on our educational system. So welcome, Karen. How are you today? Hello. Nice to be with you and with your listeners. Yes. Um, So before we get started, would you just mind um, introducing yourself a little bit more in depth and highlighting some of your work? Absolutely. So um, again, my name is Karen Gross and I'm an author and educator. And I was a college president for eight years. And I have also served as the senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Education And in my way earlier years, for two plus decades, I was a professor. And one of the things that I realized as I progressed in my career is the importance of the educational train, as I call it, and thinking about it not just in college and graduate school, but moving the train back in time So we think about children from early childhood all the way on forward so that we can help them succeed and live up to their potential. And it's for that reason that I focused most recently on trauma and its impact on education. That is fascinating, Karen. Thank you so much. Um, So let's just dive into some questions. Um, So in your expertise and in your opinion, what can be considered trauma? I think we have to dive into that first. What can be considered trauma and then does it go away? Well, actually, it's interesting because it's not a simple question at all. And it's not one with which we have agreement. And trauma means different things to different people. It means different things in different disciplines. And interestingly, trauma as a word is off-putting to some people. Um, It's traumatic to even use the word trauma for many. For my purposes and for the purposes of my work, I define trauma in an educational context. So I define trauma as a significant psychologically distressing experience or event whether it's recognized or not by the person, that has the probability of disrupting that person's educational outcomes and psychosocial development. And basically, if you narrow that down in its simplest terms, what I'm saying is trauma impacts us, it impacts our learning, It impacts our psychosocial development, and it also impacts our physical well-being down the road and at the time of the trauma. And what's important and also often not recognized is that trauma does not go away. We carry it with us. We can ameliorate it. We can understand it we can have tools to address it. 
but it never goes away. And the bad news is that that means we have to be aware of it and deal with it. The good news is that we have strategies to do that if we can get more and more people to understand what it means to be trauma responsive and more institutions to become trauma responsive as well. So since we are trying to get educators and institutions to be more aware of trauma and respond to it properly, would you mind sharing any ancillary products or tools that you have developed that can help educators help their students deal with trauma? Sure. Um, But before that, let me just add a little bit, if I could, about the nature of trauma. So, and this ties into which tools work for what. So trauma can take many forms. It can be the result of familial dysfunction. It can be the result of some external event caused by nature, a flood, a hurricane, a pandemic. It can also occur because of some horrific event like a shooting or some other violent act. It can also occur from things that we may not view all of us as traumatic, like plane crashes that we witness or hear about or train crashes or bus accidents. So there are lots of things that can trip off trauma, and it's not the same for every person. But one of the things that people have said to me is, I get it. I've read your book. I see the strategies in your book for how to become more trauma responsive at both the micro and the macro level but I need more. I need more tools. I need tools I can use in the classroom. I need tools I can use with young students. I need tools I can use with high schoolers. And I need tools I can use with adults. And so I developed a set of ancillary tools that can be used by a variety of groups, adjusted up or down in terms of age group. Um, And it might be useful if I shared a couple with you. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. All right. So let me um, talk about the feeling alphabet activity set. So one of the architectures for thinking about trauma is that if you can name it, you can tame it, and then you can frame it. The same thing is true for our feelings. And often what happens when we're traumatized is that We don't have the capacity to recognize our feelings. Our autonomic nervous system kicks in and we experience a kind of freeze or flight um, response that's autonomic and our feelings are there, but we don't recognize them. So the feeling alphabet activity set, which was co-designed with Dr. Ed Wang at Harvard Medical School, is a set of tools to help people identify their feelings, both positive and negative, and stresses the importance of being able to identify them. And it's actually a really good thing to be able to know what you're feeling, because once you know what you're feeling, you can then address it. 
So the feeling alphabet activity set is designed to do that. Um, another um, ancillary tool that I developed um, is a trauma toolbox. Now, if you could see it, um, you would see that it's a box filled with things that activate your senses. Picture a box sort of half the size of a shoebox, except nicer looking. And in it are a variety of things, including feathers and stress balls and Play-Doh and pipe cleaners and little Legos and a writing pad and a musical instrument. Yes, you can hear, here's an example of one. Um, and all of these are put together in a box and they're designed to activate the senses. Because if you can activate all five of our traditional senses, plus um, balance and intuition, which I add as the sixth and seventh sense, then you can help the autonomic nervous system settle down. So it's a tool that can be used at the beginning of a class, it can be used when students are disruptive or dysregulated, it can be used at home to calm down, used in a break. So the trauma toolbox actually animates in many ways the principles that are contained in and described by the book. And I should share one particular piece of this ancillary tool. In it is a little um, ceramic stone that you can like rub your thumb over. And the word on it that I use for the trauma toolbox is hope. And the reason I use it is because when you think of a box, many people think of Pandora's box and all the horrible things that flew out of Pandora's box in the myths. But one of the things that never flew out of Pandora's box was hope. Hope stayed in her box. And so one of the important messages about trauma is that there actually is hope for dealing with it, responding to it, ameliorating it, even though you will never get back to where you were, you can move forward in a better, um, more reflective and productive way. I really like that idea of hope. I think that's something that we all need to gravitate towards, especially in this time, this uh, rather troubling and difficult time, but also with our own you know, burdens and traumas, like you said. So what I should also share with you in addition to that is what I call the positive feeling tree, which gets at the issues that you're pointing out about the need to have hope. So picture that in, in a home or in a school, there's a jar filled with positive thoughts. And every day you take one of those thoughts and you put it on a tree a little tree, a wee tree that sits there. And if it's a tree that lights up all the better because you can illuminate your thoughts and you put all the positive thoughts on that tree and you keep that tree there. And each day you add another positive thought. And the point of that is to encourage a kind of positivity of thinking. 
And while we need to recognize negative feelings for sure, and we need to deal with them for sure, we also need to recognize that the more positive feelings we have, the more likely we are to find balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it sounds like there's almost like different levels of trauma. Can you discuss a little bit the differences between primary, secondary, and vicarious trauma? Sure. Um, so in a sense, it's levels. In a sense, they're actually different things. So primary trauma is what a person experiences that is affecting and disrupting their educational success. So right now, by way of example, many people are experiencing trauma because of the pandemic, because of racial tensions, because of ethnic bias, because of illness and deaths. Some people are struggling with trauma because schools have closed and reopened and closed and reopened. And for many students, family life is not ideal. So primary trauma is what an individual gets or has happened to them. And a really important part of this also is you don't cause trauma. It's something that happens to you, which is why when we see children who've been traumatized, the idea isn't to punish them. They didn't choose to be traumatized. It's something that happened to them. And so we have to view it with a different lens, a trauma lens, actually. So that's primary trauma. Now, I should say, and and we're not discussing that here today, that institutions also can have trauma. You can have a traumatized institution. And that's a whole separate um, set of questions. And let's leave them for another time. Um, Secondary trauma is actually something someone can catch, literally like a virus, from someone who has primary trauma. So teachers, for example, can catch trauma from their students. Now, they may have their own primary trauma, but they also will have secondary trauma from their students. And it often manifests itself in their not being able to focus as much as they used to on their lesson plans. They're tired a lot. They're cranky. They're more short-tempered with students than they were before. They're tapped out of ideas uh, for the classroom. And Sadly, what's happening now is that many teachers and educators and administrators are experiencing secondary trauma because there's such extraordinary trauma among students, the students that they serve. And whether they're serving them online or they're serving them hybrid or they're serving them in person, that trauma is contagious. So the teachers are struggling. Now, vicarious trauma is, you could think of it as a variant of or a stepped-up version of secondary trauma. 
Vicarious trauma is what happens when you're seeing so much trauma around you, not just in the school, but probably more broadly, and you start to question the fundamental values that sit at the core of who you are and what you're doing. So vicarious trauma makes you ask questions like, am I doing anything useful here in this school? Am I wasting my time and effort here? Am I losing the value of what's important in life? When you feel that, which can also be accompanied by fatigue and a distancing of oneself from one's work, the solution for that is different than the solution for secondary trauma. So it's important that we know, does someone have primary trauma, secondary trauma, primary and secondary trauma, vicarious trauma? And we often don't put the words primary, secondary, or vicarious in front of the words trauma, but we would be well served to pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating that you mentioned that, you know, educators can actually catch trauma like a virus because of that emotional labor that they're taking on um, in in helping their students. Um, And so kind of going more down this um, uh, educational route, you mentioned that trauma, there's trauma that's due to race and ethnicity and the turmoil in that, and especially in an educational context. What what? Uh, would be the intersectionality of trauma, race, and ethnicity? So let let me start by saying that we tend um, in academia, and having been a professor for many years, I take part of the blame for this too, um, we tend to think in silos. So we think about our own discipline or our own area, and we often don't see intersections and intersectionality between Um, both ideas and subject matter. So, you know, the English department is in one place and the bio department is in another and music is in yet another. And the point I'm trying to make here, um, both in the book and more generally, is that you have to view issues involving racial discrimination in the context of what they cause, which is often trauma. And some of them have been caused, in a sense, there's a connection, let me say it more clearly. People who have been discriminated against and who are struggling have been traumatized. And so we have to link the discrimination they're suffering from not only with thinking about racism and how to deal with racism, but also how to deal with the trauma that they've incurred. People who've experienced ethnic bias also are traumatized by that. And so we need to think not just about how do we eliminate ethnic bias and create a world that has a much healthier view of diversity, but we also have to think about the traumatic effect that ethnic bias or racial discrimination has on the individuals who are experiencing it. We could also add gender and gender discrimination to this. 
and sexual assault because people who have suffered gender bias or sexual assault also have been traumatized. So we have to work across the silos. So if you include people who have had issues of gender and race and ethnicity and trauma, you're talking about the intersectionality of a number of disciplines. And if you want to solve these problems, you have to start by recognizing their interdisciplinarity and then addressing them. And one of the reasons to do this, perhaps the most significant reason, has to do with the epigenetic transmission of trauma. So there's growing scientific literature to suggest that certain subgroups within American culture and other cultures, to be sure, have carried the trauma from one generation to the next, and not just culturally. They're carrying it through a change in their RNA, not their DNA. So biochemically and neurologically, trauma can be transmitted from one generation to the next. So Native Americans in the next generation, African-Americans in the next generation, ethnically diverse people in the next generation have trauma that they've, in essence, had transmitted to them through their parents. That should worry us. That should make us want to pay really close attention to dealing with trauma now so that we can curb its epigenetic transmission. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's great that you bring up intergenerational trauma. Cause I feel like that's something that we talk about very uh, little in academia It's something that we don't really bring up. It's almost like a little hokey, not seen as, um, not necessarily real. Um, so that's wonderful that you make a point to bring that up and you kind of tie it all together, um, with, you know, the way that it all connects trauma, race, and ethnicity. So, um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, could you share what can potentially re-trigger trauma in individuals? Can this re-triggering be uniform among people, or is it different based on a given trauma? So um, I think it's important to realize that we are in a moment in time, actually, as we're recording this in December of 2020, when there's a lot of re-triggering of trauma because of the surge in the pandemic. One example of the re-triggering of trauma. So when you've had a traumatic event and what's traumatic, as we talked about earlier, differs from person to person, something can happen in the future that's shared or unique to an individual that then, in essence, activates the earlier trauma. So you have not only what you're dealing with now contemporaneously, but you're also dealing with the earlier trauma that gets reactivated, reignited by something that happens now. So one way of thinking about this conceptually is if you picture that if you have trauma, and just so you know, the 
the general numbers on this are that half the children have experienced at least one trauma and 75% of all adults have experienced at least one trauma. So this isn't something that's rare. But when you've been traumatized, um, you have in essence what's the equivalent of like a tuning fork in your head. And then something in the future can set off that tuning fork. And the old trauma comes back as you're dealing with the new trauma. And one of the hardest parts is that we often don't realize what's happening. We often don't see that, ah, the reason I'm feeling the way I'm feeling now is because the earlier trauma just got reactivated by the current trauma. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, I, I was a professor very close to ground zero. And obviously that was a hugely traumatic event. And um, I saw the Twin Towers fall. I saw the plume that sort of stayed even after the buildings went down. And then the institution closed and then we reopened. All right, now fast forward about two years and I'm in the same neighborhood and I'm walking to another educational institution. And the pathway that I took took me along the edge of um, ground zero. And I'm on the phone talking to someone at my own institution about some work. And they said to me, are you all right? You sound like you're completely breathless and hardly able to communicate. And I thought to myself, well, that's really strange. I, I'm going to give another lecture at another school. And then I realized that just being in that area re-triggered the earlier trauma from years ago. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's that's hard hitting. Um, so in your work, you've used um, the term trauma anniversaries. Um, and so since you're talking about re-triggerings, are those related? How are they different? And then how do we do we deal with them separately? So um, that's a really good question. And actually, I'm, I'm teaching a course on this at Rutgers Graduate School of Social Work um, in their trauma program about a week from now. Um, so trauma, well, let me back up and say we usually think about anniversaries in a positive way, right? Like a wedding anniversary or birthdays or anniversaries. So we're really good, generally speaking, at celebrating the positive anniversaries. But when we have things that have happened that are not good, and then we're a year later or five years later or 10 years later, the question is, how do we commemorate? How do we remember? How do we memorialize what happened in the past that was difficult? And the idea of not recognizing it, of just sort of like pretending it didn't happen doesn't work because we actually can't sweep the past trauma under the rug. It won't go under. It's there. 
And so we do way better to find thoughtful ways of commemorating and memorializing what happened. And trauma anniversaries are difficult because it depends on what the trauma was as to how it is that you think about dealing with its anniversary. So let me give you some concrete examples. Um, If there was a massive school shooting a year ago, and sadly, this is one I worked on, and then you fast forward to a year later, how do you deal with that massive school shooting a year later? Now, Obviously, some of the families are mourning the loss of the students who died in the shooting. Some of the families have moved on or moved elsewhere, or, and some of the surviving students have graduated. So what do you do as a way of thinking about and planning for that anniversary? And my own institution where I was teaching near ground zero had memorialized the event originally by writing a book. And then at the 10th anniversary reissued that book. So there are different things that you would do, but you can't not remember and you have to plan because If you don't, the anniversary is upon you and you don't have the tools to deal with it. Now, one really interesting thing for me is that when we usually think of anniversaries, trauma anniversaries, um, we think about big memorials. So um, if you think about the Oklahoma City bombing and the memorial is breathtakingly beautiful illuminated chairs of everyone who passed away um, at the Pentagon after the 9-11 plane hit the Pentagon. They now have these amazing benches with water running under them and around them. And if you think of the Vietnam Memorial and the remarkably impactful names that are in that curved wall where people leave mementos or take etchings. The data actually show, the science literature on what comforts us are actually, for many people, not only big memorials, but they want something tactile that they can have and keep and take with them. And that's a shock to many people who think that the big memorial is the solution when often something you can take that memorializes the site that you can have, that you can hold, that you can see, that you can take, that you can travel with, is a more powerful and lasting and comforting memorial. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing these strategies. This is definitely heavy stuff, and it's not something that we think about very often. So I appreciate all of your work and all of these strategies. 
No, it is heavy stuff. But I, but I will say, um, on the lighter side here, lest we, you know, get really upset about this. Um, so, one of the antidotes to trauma is um, laughter. Now, I'm not suggesting laughing at the trauma. That that's not what I'm suggesting at all. Nor am I suggesting belittling what's happening. But if you can find occasions to find humor and laughter, it actually is physiologically and psychologically helpful. Because when you laugh, you let out carbon dioxide. And when you let out carbon dioxide, it changes the autonomic nervous system and opens up some neural pathways. So actually, you feel better. Now, I'm not suggesting we make jokes about school shootings or the pandemic. What I am suggesting is that other kinds of humor can be very helpful. Think about tongue twisters. So I actually wrote a tongue twister book so that students could start classes with tongue twisters. There are math tongue twisters, there are tongue twisters in shapes, there are tongue twisters that are upside down. And the value of them is that when you try to say them and you can't, and when teachers try along with students, they actually start laughing because you can't do it. They're hard. I mean, like, say Herbert Hoover three times fast. You, you can't do it. And just that interlude, that little humorous intersection in there, gives you enough time to get um, the carbon dioxide out and the neural pathways to start to open. So it isn't all bad. I actually yesterday did um, a session on giraffe jokes with 70 children at a local elementary school here. I've written a number of children's books. Um, and this joke book is one of them. And what was interesting to me is that if you ask the kids what they were feeling, they would say they were angry and frustrated and struggling. But when they actually got into the jokes, they were laughing, they were making up jokes. They were coming up with jokes. And, and there's a learning thing with jokes too, right? I mean, there's a vocabulary, wordplay um, that people can get. So um, I, I just want to encourage people, as difficult as this topic is, and it certainly is difficult, is to remember that humor, well done and well and thoughtfully used, can be helpful. Absolutely. Remind me to get that giraffe joke from you. <laughs> I think I'm going to need to hear oh, it. All right. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one or two just so you can. Uh, and, and by the way, these aren't trauma jokes. They're trauma responsive books, but these aren't trauma jokes per se. Um, so here's an example of one. Um, what's a giraffe's favorite school? Oh, gosh, I don't know. A high school. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, that's like saying, what's a giraffe's favorite chair? Once you got that one, you can get the next one. Right. A high chair. A high chair. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so uh, what does the little giraffe say to the father giraffe? I'm always going to stand tall like you. Okay. So... To understand jokes, you have to know a fair amount, um, and you have to understand words and wordplay. So 
they're really educational and I call it laugh to learn. And laugh to learn is actually a, a trauma strategy. That, those were wonderful. Thank you so much, Karen. Um, so because I love picking your brain, this is fascinating. You mentioned all of like laughter and all of these um, trauma strategies and coping mechanisms. Um, so recently we've seen kind of an increase in this rhetoric of self-care and almost like the commodification of it as well. Um, so how does this concept of self-care come into play with all of this? How do we work toward actually destigmatizing trauma and taking mental health rest? Um, so that's another difficult and not easy question. So I, I think the first thing we have to realize is that in difficult times, when we're struggling with trauma, self-care is not selfish. It's a really big difference between being selfish and taking care of oneself. So educators really need to see that if they don't take care of themselves, they will struggle to take care of the students that they serve and their own families. So it isn't selfish at all. It actually is a necessity if you want to continue to do the work that you do. And I've often talked about that educational institutions, workplaces, um, other nonprofit organizations need to have play tables and care rooms where people can go to process what's happening, to get their autonomic nervous system under control. Otherwise, the level of toxic stress goes up and you then become even more traumatized yourself. So self-care is very important, not only for the person suffering primary trauma, but also for people suffering secondary and vicarious trauma. And it, it shouldn't be underestimated. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I recently went to a, a trauma conference and in the, this is pre-pandemic, obviously. Um, and at the conference in the evening, they showed um, several films involving trauma, amazing films. But what they also did is they opened up care rooms so that if during the film or after the film, you needed to process and think about what was happening, you would go to a care room. They used all the five senses. They had weighted blankets. They had scented candles. They had someone there to listen. They had people in a circle. They had space if you wanted to just go off and be by yourself. But the bottom line is they recognized that to process trauma, to handle trauma often requires self-care. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Karen. Those those care rooms sound wonderful. They sound incredibly accommodating. And it sounds like something that's not that hard to do that we should do. Oh, absolutely. Right. In schools and in colleges and in workplaces across our nation. If we ever had a time for them, it would be now. 
yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can see a little bit more of that introduced, um, maybe post pandemic, whenever that will be, <laughs> um, we can come out of this a little stronger. Um, cause you're a hundred percent right, Karen. Um, well, thank you so much. You've been a fabulous guest and you've certainly given us a lot to think about. And for our listeners who may want to know more about trauma, its symptoms, and concrete strategies to ameliorate said symptoms, the Proctor Institute will be holding a webinar titled Trauma is an Invisible Backpack with Karen as the keynote speaker on January 26th from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Karen will talk us through some more theory and delve into how to implement concrete strategies into our educational systems. This event will also be followed by a meet and greet with Karen at 3 p.m. To register for both the webinar and the meet and greet and find out more information on this event in the coming weeks, be sure to visit our website proctor.gsc.rutgers.edu and follow the Proctor Institute on Twitter at SDP Institute. Thank you so much, Karen. My pleasure, and I look forward to being there in January with all of you virtually.